Well, turn to Galatians chapter 6. And if you don't have your Bible with you, there's one, I think, right underneath you in your chair. Um, it's a red Bible, and you can turn to page 1816. 1816. We are in a nine week series on Galatians, and it's our prayer that this nine-week commitment to studying this letter has opened your eyes to the themes that Paul was speaking to the early church. If not, and if you have had a cold or if you have uh, been golfing every Sunday this summer, what I'm going to do is I'm going to condense nine weeks into 15 summary statements because I want to catch you up to speed, but also let you hear and know the themes that we have been teaching as a teaching team throughout this Galatians series. The purpose for this letter was Paul wrote this to warn the early church against the protest against the corruption of the gospel. The gospel was under attack early on. It didn't take long for people to start manipulating what the gospel meant. And he's reminding this first generation of Christians that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And we get into severe trouble in our faith life when we say Jesus plus this or Jesus plus that. But Paul's saying Jesus plus nothing else is sufficient. The gospel is not just a way to enter into the kingdom, but a way to live a part of the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven as Jesus teaches us to pray. And our Christian citizenship trumps our earthly citizenship. You are a Christian before you are anything else over the course of your life. You're offered a new identity. That, that new identity in Christ is a gift. You are not expected to go figure out how to live according to that identity on your own, but you are given power via the Holy Spirit to know how to walk as a Christ follower. However, you have done absolutely nothing to earn or deserve that new identity in Christ. It is a gift. God has done all the work. Jesus accomplished all the work. The Holy Spirit is still doing the work, and you just need to reach out and receive it. We're all children of God. We're all children of God. We're all baptized into Christ. And we're told all throughout Scripture to put on and clothe ourselves with Christ. That's a metaphor that we see often in Paul's writings. He says to put on Christ, put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. We're clothed with him. The cross is where all of our human distinctions like class and culture and gender, all of those human distinctions lose all of their significance at the foot of the cross. When it comes to salvation in Christ, we have to enter into that relationship with him the same. All of us are called to a place of repentance and faith to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And he has spent, sent the spirit of his son Jesus to live in our hearts inviting us into this depth of intimacy with him. As a church, we are called to keep alert, to remain strong, to resist attack, to hold our ground, and to stick together. And ultimately, neither our moral achievements nor our moral failures compare to the work of Christ on the cross. His efforts on the cross trump our efforts in this life. Walking in step with the Holy Spirit prevents us from choosing to gratify our selfish, sinful desires and nature. And it is the fruit of the Spirit, the love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and so on that helps us know how to live, helps us know how to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Our duty in this church is not to judge one another, but in every way, restore one another 
into the joy of the Lord. And it is a deep privilege as a church, as this church, to look out for the body of Christ and to bear one another's burdens, as you heard the great story and example of this church doing so for the uh, Gillett family last week. So let's finish. Chapter 6, starting at verse 11, wrap up our Galatians study, and it begins with Paul saying, you see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. I write to you with my own hand. There's an encounter in Acts chapter 23 that leads a lot of people to speculate that Paul had poor eyesight, poor vision. Now, whether the large letters were because of his vision or maybe his poor penmanship, we don't know what the ultimate reason was for the large letters. But what we do know is that he took the pen from his scribe. He took the pen and he said, I'm going to write the conclusion of this letter. He personalizes his letter. So the large letters very well could have been him putting emphasis on his final comments. It's those of you with children who say, if you have not heard one thing I've said up to this point, listen closely to this. And he grabs the pen. And he writes, verse 12, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Paul begins and ends his letter with the same warning that the Galatian church is hearing a corrupted gospel. If you'll remember, I started this series nine weeks ago with chapter one, verses six through seven. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace. Everyone say, by the grace. No other way did Jesus call us into relationship with him. By the grace of Christ, you're turning to a different gospel. And he says, which is really no gospel at all. So a different gospel that you're hearing is not a gospel to begin with. He says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Let me pause and say that the staff this week gave me a really hard time because I think every single time I've stood on stage during this series, the topic and theme has been circumcision. (laughs) No, we're not starting a new small group themed on that, and we're not asking for any volunteers. But Paul clearly states a few themes in this letter. What caused him to pick up the pen and to end, what compelled him to end the letter this way? He summarizes essentially that legalism is one of the greatest threats to the gospel of grace. It's a great threat to the gospel of grace. Salvation, listen to this, is an interior, supernatural transformation. Interior, supernatural transformation. In no way, say no way, come on, in no way is it dependent on our external human efforts. The gospel does not depend on you and me. And these false teachers, they taught that salvation was a combination of God's love and. 
It's that Jesus plus. So these early teachers are taking Paul's initial message to the church and they're saying salvation is God's grace and upholding Jewish customs. God's grace is salvation and conforming to the Mosaic law. God's grace, salvation is God's grace in observing dietary regulations. And unfortunately for the adult converts, salvation was God's grace plus circumcision. God's grace plus, God's grace plus, Jesus plus, salvation plus. That's where we get into trouble. And maybe there are some of you here today who still wrestle. You still wrestle with the fact that God's salvation is completely free. I've sat with plenty of junior high and high school small groups over the course of ministry, and many times they say, yeah, this sounds wonderful. God's grace, God's salvation, God's love. What do you you mean it's free? Surely it can't be free. It's possible today that you feel like God's forgiveness, forgiveness from such a holy God, requires some sort of payment from you. It's possible today that you feel the urge to do something to repay God for the debt that you owe. And that's our nature. That's our human nature to be suspicious, isn't it? I mean, admit it. We get suspicious when something seems too good to be true. We often say, wait, 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 what's the catch? You get these phone, call, phone calls selling that Bahamas vacation, right? It's completely free, isn't it? All you got to do is go to this two-hour presentation. Surely it's not free, right? We're suspicious, But Paul's letter is clear. A man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, so that we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The themes are the same throughout this letter, plain and simple, to add anything to the grace of God and the work of Christ on the cross negates the work of Christ on the cross. We must not add anything to it. There's a great book. It's called One Way Love. You can email me and I'll send you a link to purchase it online, but it's a great book. Uh, For any of you who are here and you might admit, yeah, sometimes I feel like my performance is directly linked to my salvation. One Way Love, the title also reads, Inexhaustible Grace for an Exhausted World. Just a show of hands, if you're comfortable. How many of you all just feel exhausted every once in a while? Come on. We're just exhausted. Inexhaustible Grace for an Exhausted World. The author writes on this subject, sadly, he says, the Christian church has not proven to be immune to performancism. Far from it, in fact. We give people the impression that Christianity is first and foremost about the sacrifice we make for Jesus rather than the sacrifice Jesus made for us, our performance for him rather than his performance for us, our obedience for him rather than his obedience for us. And he says the hub of Christianity is not do something for Jesus. The hub of Christianity is Jesus has done everything for you. He says, don't get me wrong, what we do is important, 
But it's infinitely less important than what Jesus has done for us. Grace is the most dangerous, expectation-wrecking, smile-creating, counterintuitive reality that there is. That's what grace is. Paul Zoll writes like this, defining grace. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. My neighbor, he's a very kind and generous man, and he constantly invites our children over to swim, which I'm constantly like, do you know what you're getting into? He has a wonderful granddaughter. He loves our children to come play with her and swim. Um, Every single time they go over there, our neighbor says, kids, does anybody want a Powerade? And of course, every kid says, me, me. And he walks out four Powerades and distributes these drinks to my kids. And while it's kind and generous, you know what I'm thinking. I'm thinking every time we go swim at his house, it's like charging him seven bucks because he's giving these Powerades to my kids. And instinctively, you know what I wrestle with? Every time I'm over there, I think, I got to go buy like $100 worth of Powerade to reimburse him for our kids' summer at his pool. And you know he wouldn't receive it. He gives out of his generous heart. Now, how many of you would just admit with me that you struggle sometimes receiving, but in a circumstance where you can't give back? Just lift your hand up if you struggle. Yeah, I don't like to receive gifts that I can't repay or return. That's pretty instinctive for a lot of people. We don't want people blessing us that we can't turn around and bless in return. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. My kids can drink from the fount of Powerade, and my neighbor never expects me to return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you're unlovable. Grace has everything to do with the lover, not the beloved. It has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts, whatever they may be. Grace reflects a decision on the part of the giver, on a part of the one who loves in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved, that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. Grace is, and here's the title of the book, one-way love. God doesn't love us because we first loved him. We can love because Christ first loved us. Verse 14, may I never boast except in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Here's this idea of being crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who lives, but it is he who lives in me. If we fully understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, we boast exclusively in the cross. We boast exclusively in our Savior. Nothing else, not even ourselves. This verse is a terrific summary of the gospel. We get absolutely no credit for reserving our seat next to Jesus. It's all him. Back to the swimming pool. Every child loves to hear a parent say, You can do it. I mean, my children will get on the end of the high dive and they're terrified and they're shaking. The board is wobbling because they're so scared. And they're not going to jump. 
And then I come, rally behind them, and I say, you can do it. And if they don't do it, I'll push them. But you can do it, right? That changes the course of that child's moment when they hear their parent lovingly say, I believe in your ability. And do you know what the Bible repetitively says, clearly and bluntly over and over again? You cannot do it. You cannot do it. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You don't deserve a relationship with God. You can't, you can't, you can't because Christ has. You can't do what God has already done. You can't accomplish what Christ has already accomplished. It is all Him. And when we understand that, we're offered a new perspective on life, being crucified to the world and the world to me. It's a new perspective that means you don't need to worry about what other people say or think about you. How many of you have worried about what somebody else has said about you in the last week? Come on, tell the truth. I have. This new perspective frees us from that, delivers us from that. You don't need to worry about what will happen tomorrow. There's something that all of us wrestle with. We're freed from that necessity to worry and fear about tomorrow. This new perspective means that nothing has control or dominion over your life. If you are in Christ, you see everything in life, but you're not controlled by anything in life. The kingdom of God, the King Jesus, has dominion over your life. This new perspective means that you need nothing in order to be happy. You don't have to have this, this, and this in order to be fulfilled in your heart. This new perspective on life means that there's absolutely no trial or challenge that you can't endure. That's the perspective that Christ gives us. Paul knew a thing or two about trials, didn't he? He documented some of the trials that he endured. Let me share from 2 Corinthians, and maybe you'll be inspired today by his perspective, this new perspective on being made new in Christ. He says, I've worked. I've been in prison. I've been flogged severely. I have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles. I'm in danger in the city, and I'm in danger in the country. I'm in danger at sea, and I'm in danger from false believers. I have labored, and I have toiled, and I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger, and I have known thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold. I have been naked. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships, persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Anybody inspired by that today? Does that light a fire under you today? 
This is the new perspective that we are given in Christ Jesus. When we are weak, we can delight in our weaknesses because we know that we are strong in the Lord. Go ahead and say that out loud and declare it with me. When I am weak, that was pretty weak. <laughs> say it with me and mean it. When I am weak, then I am strong. Say it again. When I am weak, then I am strong. His grace is sufficient for you regardless what you're going through. And maybe that's what you need to take home in your pocket today and remember over the course of this week. The new perspective that we gain when we are in Christ. Verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Legalism, the message of these early false teachers, that we have to keep commands in order to be saved and to please God. Moralism, believing that Christianity is just a set, a moral code, right? A set of rules that we have to follow to please God. The mindset that this conveys is that if you behave, you belong. Well, what a terrible message to share with our friends. What a horrible message to share with our neighbors and in our workplaces. I'm a Christian. I know Jesus. If you behave, you can belong too. That's not very inviting. By the way, none of us had to course correct anything in our lives in order for God to love us. The message that we have and carry as a church is that you don't need to go out and fix anything in your life in order to be loved by God. Let God love you and love God, and you'll see the course corrections take place as you experience the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. This message, if you behave, you belong, was completely reversed when Jesus arrived on the scene. If you believe, you belong, Jesus says. It's not about behavior modification and doing all these things and crossing off all these boxes spiritually to be loved by God. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. John chapter 1, all who call upon the name of the Lord are given the right to be called sons and daughters of God. It's not about behavior, it's about believing. And this idea of a new creation still is difficult for some to grasp. A new creation... Becoming a Christ follower, this new creation doesn't just carry eternal implications. It's not about just a new creation for all of eternity. It's about a new creation here and now, that I can live in this flesh, in this outer shell, over the course of my life as a new creation, not just in eternity with him. It has implications today. It's a new birth, a supernatural transformation, new character, New creation. Kahinos is the original Greek here for new, and it means fresh. It means unused. It means original. When you are in Christ, you are a fresh, unused, original creation. That should light a fire under you as well. That's the work of Christ in our life. Have you ever fully looked into the metamorphosis process of a caterpillar? You're going to now. A caterpillar begins its life as a little egg. And that process in and of itself is extraordinary, how that egg comes about. After the egg hatches, 
and the caterpillar emerges, it has one focus in life, eat. Just eat and eat and then eat some more and eat until you can't eat, eat anymore. That's its whole job description in the early stage of its life. And when it matures and when it's ready, it starts spinning on a silken pad, it's called a chrysalis, and it surrounds its body with this shield. We call it a cocoon. And as the process continues, it hangs there and this chrysalis is formed, and what happens in this cocoon is profound and it's mysterious. But each and every cell, every single cell of that caterpillar begins dissolving. Every single cell turns off. One by one, every cell, like a switch, turns off. And the larva, once fully covered in this chrysalis, it dissolves from its former state, this worm-like state. It completely dissolves into this unrecognizable substance. And once it fully dissolves into this substance that's much like a, a goo, you know what it does? It dies. Science has proven this, that every single caterpillar cell deactivates, switches off, and dies. And within this liquid substance, dormant cells that are sleeping switch on. Dormant cells that are sleeping activate. And when they're activated, it starts developing things like legs and the form of a body and, of course, wings. And according to biologists, the change from a caterpillar to a butterfly is, in fact, the creation of an entirely new creature. And while we look at the butterfly and think, oh, it was once a caterpillar, it's scientifically proven that absolutely nothing from the old caterpillar is alive in the new butterfly. Every cell of that caterpillar was deactivated and the butterfly came from all new cells. It's profound. And it's similar to what happens in us. When we receive salvation in Christ, it's like when Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. It says the old things passed away. The old things aren't lingering. The old things still aren't addressed. It's passed away. And he says, behold, new things have come. That's the invitation to be a new creature, a new creation in Christ. And that testimony is very alive today. Uh, I, was, I learned of a story this week in the late 1960s, the American Red Cross, they were gathering supplies and medical supplies and medicine and first aid, clothing, food. And they were sending all of these resources to help with those that were suffering to the Nigerian Civil War. Missionaries and doctors went overseas and began to lend a hand. 
Inside one of the boxes that arrived at one of the distribution and collection sites where things were organized and then sent, inside one of the boxes was a letter. And the letter read this, we have recently been converted to Christ. And because of our conversion, we wanna help. We will never need these again. Can you please use them for something? And underneath the letter in this box were dozens and dozens of Ku Klux Klan white sheets. These sheets, it's told that they were eventually stripped down and sent overseas and used to bandage wounds. Now, the idea of a new creation couldn't be more dramatic than the life change that we see in this story. That whoever that individual was, these white sheets were once symbols of their hatred. And because of the new creation, they were used instead as bandages of love. That's new creation at work. And so as we worship together, I wanna to invite you to spend a moment and ponder, am I living today in this life like the new creation that I know I am in Christ Jesus? Let's stand and worship together.